folks, it's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Welcome Welcome to Democratic Perspective. Uh, Steve Williamson here. Sitting across from me is... Hava, good morning. Happy to and be here. And we have a guest today. Hava, you want to introduce our guest? Because we were I talking about to. restorative justice. And it For, seemed or, to me that we talked about restorative justice just a few weeks ago. But it turns out that our, our interview was in 2013. And in November of that year, we interviewed Elizabeth Yancey and Warren Sanford, who were doing uh, restorative justice back then. Wow, eight so, years. Yeah, it's, it's well, been a long time. And so, is. Dustin, why don't you introduce our yes, guest? Yes, I'm happy to introduce Dustin. Dustin Gilman Steenstra. Steenstra? Absolutely. Excellent. Well done. Yeah, thanks. We've known each other for some years and have watched you come up in this world. It's been really exciting to see you really bring a... Uh, uh, bring a huge movement of restorative justice to the Verde Valley. Um, and I, I think the best spot to start is uh, what restorative justice is. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing here in uh, Arizona. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've been here in Sedona for about seven years now. And initially, I was introduced to restorative justice by Barry McAtansky, who is the manager down at uh, Twice Nice. He works with the Verde Valley Sanctuary. Um, I work with him at the Verde Valley Sanctuary as a development director, and I've worked as a volunteer and the executive director of Northern Arizona Restorative Justice for about three years now. Um, and in the process of bringing restorative justice, it became clear that most people in this area have no idea what restorative justice mm-hmm. is. And so I think beginning with the understanding of our criminal justice system, it's important to, to understand that our current paradigm of, of justice is retributive. Mm-hmm. What we do with our current justice system is we arrest somebody and we look at how can we punish somebody mm-hmm. for the law that they broke and the wrong that they did. Mm-hmm. And restorative justice looks at the harm that was done more relationally. Like what was the relationship damage and the harm that was caused? And rather than how do we punish this person, how do we repair the harm? Mm -hmm. And so that really begins with the process of accountability and responsibility. And it's something that in the traditional justice system with punishment, we oftentimes don't get to. Mm -hmm. What's the first thing that a defendant does when they come in? They plead not guilty and they hold on to that the whole way. Right. And so we don't get to the the type of dialogue that restorative justice brings. Meaning bringing the victim and the offender together so that there can be some also, too, because the victim's kind of left out of this. You know, we punish somebody, we put them away and we forget about them. But then there's the victim that maybe still has some hurt or whatever's yeah. happened in that situation that they haven't resolved. So how does that work with, uh, with the offender? Well, first of all, the, the traditional justice system has a dissatisfaction rate amongst victims as well. Mm-hmm. I think we, we oftentimes think that the justice system does its work and the victims are satisfied and, and everybody goes on and the, the damage that was done is repaired by what we've done. And what 
what we've seen with restorative justice is that bringing people together allows for a more in-depth discussion to see how relationships were harmed in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then to dig deeper and to understand some of the root causes for how this even occurred in the first place, mm-hmm. to give somebody a chance to begin to learn something new. It's a it's somewhat of a skill set to learn for victims and offenders. And As the victims and offenders learn, one of the byproducts is that those that implement it and those that allow for it to be implemented, such as uh, our court system, they begin to learn a new way. And so as the uh, as the victims and offenders get together, our our, um, process begins with a circle Mm -hmm. and. 17 years ago, Northern Arizona Restorative Justice started as a diversion program for youth offenders that were first-time offenders going into probation. So Last time we did an interview, yes, that was just for youth offenders and first-time offenders. I also think a, a point I think that uh, you should expand on is um, a woman's house, say, is, is broken into and some stuff is stolen and a perpetrator is caught. Even if the material stuff is recovered, there's a lot of feeling of vulnerability that occurs mm-hmm. that I think it seems possible if you have the the, the offender and, and, and the person who's been offended against, together they can at least discuss it or talk about it because um, the, the person may imagine much more violence might have happened to them if they had been there, so forth and so on. So it's left open into the imagination. Uh, one thing I think is interesting about is, is restorative justice is that there gets to be a dialogue between the victim or the, 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 uh, and, and the perpetrator. And it seems to me that would be helpful just in itself. Oh, no question. Most of the time... Communication is so key. Mm -hmm. I many years ago I was working in education in prison and I was asked to teach a class and the first class that I wanted to teach was on communication and restorative justice because I think it's one of the foundational principles to helping people develop skill sets that allow them to navigate harm and conflict in a different way because conflict's Mm -hmm. inevitable. We're humans, right? Mm -hmm. We're gonna fight. We're going to have disagreements. But how we navigate those becomes very different, especially when we're able to see the humanity behind mm-hmm. it. And that's what restorative yeah. justice really does in allowing the the person who, as in restorative justice, we call the author of harm, the person who committed the harm themselves. They don't oftentimes have a perspective of exactly how their harm is is impacting somebody in their life. Mm -hmm. They see the action that they were doing from the perspective of whatever need they were trying to have fulfilled or whatever. Uh, Sometimes mental illness can play a role, so it's not necessarily uh, well thought out. It's. It's an action that they're looking back right. on or and trying abuse. to understand. Yeah. And yeah. drug abuse, exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. And also being just very, very young and just uh, making mistakes, basically. That's a, because that's a big they really one. haven't 
gotten enough life experience to also kind of figure things out. Yeah, and the brain isn't developed. Yeah. No question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No question. And, and how we respond to the undeveloped brain helps to develop the brain. Mm-hmm. And so when we respond with punishment traditionally, it creates a cycle within yeah. the person where they begin to identify with themselves as the harm. Mm-hmm. And they see themselves as the harm. And it creates that perpetual nature yeah. of repeating that cycle. Yeah. And so a lot of this is really addressing the cycle so that we can break that cycle. I think that's an extremely important point, but a subtle one. Why don't we go over that again, Dustin, expand a little bit on it. Uh, Because if you have an oppositional system, then you're guilty and your response is, no, I'm not, you know, is that kind of thing. But uh, And the other thing is that the, the person is taking in the fact that they're the victimizer, that they're creating as the identification of themselves. It becomes a, it expand. When these things happen, it expands their different definition of self. So this is, this is what you're saying is sort of subtle, but it would have an impact eventually if people were to identify with more of them. Once you're in prison, you, you're going to identify with what you're in there for you know, et cetera, et cetera, and how you relate to other people given what you're in there for. And, you know, um, very much a, a te- the people I talk to in prison, very much a, a temptation, particularly in large penitentiaries, to be, become part of a gang of some kind. More and more identification, more separating yourself from society mm-hmm. and from ordinary citizens. Mm-hmm. So how can restorative justice mitigate this? Well, Addressing that separation, one of the principles of restorative justice is to see ourselves as humans and as a culture as a connected web of people. And so when we go in or when Northern Arizona Restorative Justice brings volunteers, I should say, into the jail here in Yavapai County, which we were doing pre-COVID, as a result of COVID, we have not been able to go in. Mm -hmm. What we were doing is we were addressing the... uh, the individual's trauma. The Yavapai County brought in a nurse to teach about parenting and in the parenting class, they talked about the nature of trauma and the way that it affects the brain, especially in children. Mm -hmm. And what they discovered is that most of the people attending this class, it was like ripping a bandaid off of a bullet wound. They were uncovering these deep seated Mm -hmm. traumas from early childhood. And we're looking at the 50 year old person sitting there still replaying the same thing over and over again in their life. And so what restorative justice is address what what restorative justice and what restorative practices does because there's a differentiation restorative justice is how we implement in the justice system restorative practices expands to how we can do this in schools and how we can do this in businesses and we're teaching it to nonprofits so it's really a framework of how we can relate with people differently. And so the way we address it is by focusing on the relationships and in communication. How can nonviolent communication is a method of communication that plays very much into restorative practices because it teaches people to express these harms in a way that's constructive rather than destructive. But people need a very safe place to do this. If you've been in prison... To talk emotionally about what happened to you is uh, taboo. Except to complain yeah. about it is yeah. just not something that that you can do. I mean, I, I think I don't. 
Well, and that's one of the things we're doing to change the culture is we're allowing for people to have that safe place and creating that place for even inmates to begin to deal with this. Well, the seven-minute trailer of Brian and uh, Ron's film that you're working on, No Shame, No Blame. Yeah. No blame, no sh- yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful. You see some circles in prison. Yeah. With prisoners really being vulnerable and open and raw in their sharing. Well, that's, it's a magic that you sort of create in the circle. Mm-hmm. And it, it really comes back to a lot of the tribal traditions of creating this space. They used to mm-hmm. sit around a mm-hmm. fire as a tribe and talk about the harms that happened in their community in a way that was like, how can we throw this in the fire, dissolve it, and transmute it into something different? Mm-hmm. And so we create that space by coming in and saying, this is a place where we're not going to shame people. We're not going to blame people, including you. Because oftentimes people have identified so long with the harm that they embody it. Mm-hmm. They, they see themselves in the role of This is who I am. I'm just going to go do the same thing. And until we allow for them the space to see themselves as they didn't believe that when they were seven years old about themselves. And so a lot of the work we do is bringing people back to a place where it's like, where do you remember a time and a place in your life where this wasn't present with you, where you didn't believe this about yourself? Mm. And then the waterworks start and you see grown men turn into <laughs> to this soft person that they, they always were. Mm. The thing that I think is, is most impactful about restorative practices is that a lot of the inmates that we had here in Yavapai County Jail doing this program took to it in such a way where even when they went to prison, they were creating their own restorative Mm. practice circles on the yard and they were resolving conflict themselves in a way that was not violent, which, as you know, about prison Mm. is not the culture of prison. There's Mm. typically one way to deal with conflict, and that is conflict, (laughs) force and power and power and control are one of the things that needs to kind of dissolve in a way. And has to be addressed on an individual and personal level for the change really to occur. We see this, the work that we're doing is a ripple effect. We're simply going in in these circles and dropping a pebble in the water. And the ripple effect that goes out is when each of these individuals buys into it personally and brings these perspectives and skills, most importantly, skills of communication Mm -hmm. If people can learn, well, that's where communication starts, right? I mean, good, good communication starts not with, hey, I know how to say something really well. It starts with, I know how to listen. Mm -hmm. I know how to hear. And for the person who committed harm to hear the perspective of the person who was harmed is very impactful. Mm -hmm. I was personally introduced to uh, restorative practices and restorative justice on what was called a victim impact panel. I was in prison and I was sitting before three victims who had been hurt in ways that the 27 inmates that were sitting there Our eyes were peeled open to see something from a perspective that we hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. We were looking at it as, well, I was just trying to do this and it begins, it it minimizes. It's very common to, for offenders and and people who commit harm to minimize their actions. Mm -hmm. And it comes from a place where they don't even understand their actions. There's no perspective there. And until we have that dialogue and can have that communication, how is that perspective developed? Mm -hmm. But if the perspective comes 
through the form that we have been doing it here and everywhere as the traditional justice system, it just comes from what is the ways that we can use anything and everything you did against you. Mm -hmm. And so the paradigm shift in restorative justice is rather than using it against somebody, which if, if we're trying to get somebody to live a better life, if we use everything against them, how do we ever expect as a community they're going to come out and be different? They're just yeah. going to end up back or in prison again. Yeah. Tell us in detail how it works. I, I've committed a nonviolent crime. Maybe it's fairly serious. Mm -hmm. And instead of uh, instead of going to trial or maybe after before trial, tell us how it works for me as an individual uh, who's 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 committed a crime or who's charged with a crime. Steve robbed my house. Yes, mm -hmm. I robbed I robbed Holland's house. Robbed my house. Mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't uh, hurt anybody, but I took a whole lot of stuff. I mean, I really sentimental you know, I got, stuff. I got, my got, mom's jewelry yeah, sold yeah, it. You pawned yeah. it. It's gone. There's I no took a lot of stuff, and they're in shock because you know her mom is. This stuff is part of her identity because she's collected it. And it's been given to her by significant people, and I break in there and I just take it all. So what happens with restorative justice in that situation? So the first thing that needs to happen is we need to get the buy-in from both of you that you're willing to participate in the process. The process can go nowhere unless we have willing participants. And so in the work that we're doing with juveniles, for instance, we have, are an official diversion program of the justice system. And so a kid comes in, gets charged with a crime, pre-adjudication so before they go to court it is determined that this case is going to get diverted to us mm. okay and so that's one avenue in which uh, an organization can receive a case Th there's a multiple different ways that we could address this primarily what we do is we bring all the willing participants into a circle together we have trained facilitators who are, are trained in listening primarily and in, in hearing and understanding where a person is coming from and how they can allow their voice to be heard. So the beginning of bringing people together, uh, the greatest challenging uh, challenges we face are scheduling and unwillingness right now to get together in person. So I'm unwilling to participate. Restorative justice sounds really complex to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I want to I don't know if I want to see Hava and her mom and, and then talk to them and they're going to accuse me of stuff. So I don't want any part of it. Then what yeah. happens to well, me? So first of all, I want you to understand that this is not about casting accusations against you. It's about having a conversation and a dialogue with you to help you in your own understanding of how your actions impacted other people. And I can understand your reluctance to go into that because it is very vulnerable. But what the process is going to look like is not necessarily coming at you from a perspective that you're probably afraid of, and that is that we're going to shame and blame you, that we're going to sit here and tell you all the bad things you did and tell you how horrible you are as a human being. That's not a part of the process. 
the part I think of, that's something that uh, I don't know about how I think that's something that people wouldn't understand on the outset. They would think, "Oh, I'm going to go into this thing and then they're they're going to accuse me of stuff and you know, I'm not, you know, well, I'm, I'm really not going to be able to defend myself and and what do I want to be part of a process like I just rather go to jail than than actually yeah. talk to, <laughs> <laughs> talk oh, to the Absolutely. I'll go do my time. That seems tough. Yeah. And, yeah, there is some vulnerability and and difficulty in it because it is something that's so outside of the paradigm. Mm-hmm. We're used to dealing with conflict in an adversarial way. Right. Our system is established that way. It's this versus that. And and that black and white nature of the way we deal with conflict is rooted in our our human biology for and, and the way that we've done things for years. And so in order to really bring yourself into that perspective, the first thing we need to do is step back from that perspective. And so a circle oftentimes starts by facilitators really establishing that space and creating that place where we differentiate between what most people think is going to happen and and then we point out the very simple principles of, okay, now that you've established that you feel disconnected from one another, how might we begin the process of seeing each other as one? Mm-hmm. How might we begin this process of looking at the harm we did as an opportunity? Like this conflict is a massive opportunity for us to address within ourselves patterns of behavior that can continue cyclically forever and you can become an alcoholic or drug addict or abuser or whatever whatever identifier you grab a hold of you can do that in perpetuity Mm. or we can address this now and that cycle can break and you can learn new skill sets in in a matter of a couple hours What's amazing is that most of the time these circles take, we, we do a series of two or three different circles. And so we meet once and circle up. And in a matter of a couple hours, trust is built. I think we have to understand that relationships are founded and built on trust. Mm-hmm. That is the, it's the foundation of our civilized society. And one of the things that's eroded so much, um, I, especially in, in the last decade, we've seen an erosion of public trust. Trust, if you go into any public building, there's almost this presumptive nature of don't trust anyone. And if you I think, think that's absolutely, uh, absolutely the case that is, is eroding our society, this lack of trust, um, the Tocqueville and stuff, you know, an active citizenry, actively being engaged in the, the culture and the citizenship that has certain requirements and suggestions and stuff. I think that that's kind of really, that's really failed. And I think that, uh, I think that you're right. I think that, that building trust is the key to getting this going. Um, I did some, uh, I went to one conference by Robert Bly of men doing men's work and, and he always included some people with, who had been in prison in, in the process of dealing with men. What, Surprise me is that uh, when men opened up, there's this sort of violent, I don't mean my, violent in that sense, but this, this extreme response when people finally, finally opened up and, and talked about what was bothering them. Their, their father never had a, had a relationship with their father, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever those things were, they 
they elicit to me surprisingly a powerful emotions yes. because you know um i i would think that many of the criminals secretly mm, feel you know shame and 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 feel like failures and remorse no yeah. question yeah. it's they very feel, yeah. very very uncommon to come into a circle of inmates and not see remorse. That's very unlikely. Most individuals, especially here in our county jail, are normal everyday citizens who made some mistakes or had things that happened to them. Trauma is a huge root cause. Um, addiction and mental illness. I think that's one of the reasons why Sheriff David Rhodes is doing an amazing job of bringing a proactive approach towards trying to mitigate the harm before it happens, giving people mental health services, teaching our kids in schools restorative practices. Steve King, the superintendent of the Cottonwood Oak Creek School District, brought in restorative practices to their school district three years ago. Yeah, tell us more about that, how, how it's, uh, we're kind of keeping kids out of, out of the, the system by bringing it into the school so early. Yeah, absolutely. It's bringing the, the restorative practices principles into the classroom. And we brought a, a trainer from Colorado to teach the teachers. And fortunately, we have teachers here in that school district who were eager to learn. And in doing so, they brought these principles into their classroom. And when conflict happened in the classroom, they began to practice, how can we circle up and deal with this before we send a kid to be suspended or expelled from school? And they had less uh they had less suspensions, they had less truancy, and they brought kids in to actually deal with the problem. What they found is that they started to see the things that were happening at home and the things that were happening beneath the surface and the why. Why is this happening? Oftentimes is at the forefront of our mind when a kid is misbehaving. And for the, uh, the children, they have in that circle a safe space where they can share things that they usually wouldn't be able to share and the the practices in the schools are so simple that kids get it mm -hmm. like kids understand very quickly the difference between how it impacts them when they're told and punished when they're told that they've done something wrong and they're punished or when they're told that they identify with that like you're a bad kid mm -hmm. Imagine the impact of that if you're that child and now you believe you're a bad kid. Now that just goes on to further perpetuate the problem. I think particularly if, if, they re, if they're sort of repeat offenders, caught or not caught, they do something over and over again which they know they shouldn't be doing, but which if you confront them, they get really defensive about. I think then, then it gets really internalized. You become a person, instead of a person who made a mistake, you become a person who is a mistake. <laughs> Absolutely. And think well, about how naturally it is for us to approach that with the way we confront somebody. And just in doing that, we confront somebody in a confrontational way. And immediately we begin that back and forth. Now both parties are defensive. You got one party backed up and another party fight and, and it becomes that push and pull. And 
to create a space that's free of shame and blame, that creates this place where people can really explore how you're feeling. Now, it can get really visceral. There's a lot of anger beneath the surface of a lot of the pain that people in the jails have experienced. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of pain underneath that. There's a lot of hurt underneath that. And what we do is kind of peel the layers back and we see the anger come out first and then we be, okay, what's beneath that anger? Like what's, what's causing this? And when people can begin to self-identify the harm, not the harm, like that other people are telling them that they caused, but when they really get it, you see this aha moment where they understand at a deeper level how their actions have impacted people and then we can explore how can you do something different because the skill sets weren't necessarily taught by the parents of people who taught them to do exactly what they're doing they learned from their family how to engage in conflict just that way Mm -hmm. now mom and dad are fighting mom wants to win the argument dad wants to win the argument and they're going to go at it until someone wins that's our adversarial system in a nutshell and if we can both step back from that and say, you know what, maybe it's not about us winning. What if it's about both of us being heard and understood in a way that helps us both be better? Mm-hmm. I w- do you have any feedback from families with uh, with children in schools that are using restorative justice? Have you yeah, got any feedback? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we sent out uh, restorative practice information to all of the families in the school district this year, and we were very pleased to hear back how it impacted people at home. Like the conversations that I heard from one family who was, they were having domestic disputes with six, a 16 and a 14 year old, and they were at just a complete end. They were ready to send their kids away. They're yeah. like, I'm done with this. I don't know how to deal with this conflict. And months later now, they're sitting down as a family and they're communicating about their issues. Mm-hmm. And it's it's impactful when you see kids bring this into the say, family. They have to teach they're them. bringing yeah. it in. And then you see the parents get it. And you start mm-hmm. to see the the I love when, as men, we're a little bit hard-headed sometimes, right? Especially when it comes to conflict, I think. And to see men really embrace the sensitivity that's oftentimes not allowed by our society. Our, Our society kind of forbids emotions in a way. And this process is a part of really returning something that's core and essential mm-hmm. to who we are as human yeah. beings. If we remove the humanity from the system, we're going to create an inhumane system. We see it now in the ramifications of everything that we've created. We've got three million people locked up and nobody's getting the treatment that right. they need. Right. Yeah. As we've said many times, we've got more people locked up percentage-wise and in raw figures as any country in the world. And there are a lot larger countries or a few larger countries in the United States in terms of population. And we really really went into lock up everybody who's offended. That's somehow going to solve the problem. And we also went, um, and I've talked to criminologists back a a few years ago, um, they kind of gave up on 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 uh, training anybody in prison they kind of 
uh, gave up on learning skills. They just kind of decided, well, we'll just put them in. And uh, the criminologists couldn't, could no longer really talk to the people running the prisons about some kind of program that would reintroduce them to society. Mm-hmm. So we went from a mixed bag and very varied from place to place, from horrible to, to pretty good, to a, a situation where all we did was locking people up. And uh, I think, folks, whatever your political persuasion is, it didn't work, did it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it just fundamentally did not work. That was not the way to do it. We have to try something else. Absolutely. And and this is one of the most simple solutions to that problem. I, a lot of times criminologists notice and see that this system is broken. We, it's pretty much agreed upon. There's a, between 8 and 15% agreed upon of people that are in our prison systems that are factually innocent. Mm. Should not be the case. Yeah, and you and, you and I both uh, talked about this statistic this morning that 97% of people in prison never even saw trial, that they just plea bargained. Uh, that's the norm. Uh, 97% of people. I know people who I, I believe have plea bargained who were not guilty yeah. of what they were charged yeah. that's because right. they were so frightened by yeah. what happens to you if you don't plea bargain. I think a lot of people, I think, I don't. what are your statistics on it? But there's a, a whole lot of people. If I know somebody personally or right. maybe two people personally who, who I think a plea bargain just to get out of the problem, then oh, how, very how common. common should that be? It okay. shouldn't be common at all. That's not justice. Yeah. Justice is not scaring somebody into saying what we want them to hear. Yeah. Justice is accountability and responsibility. And that's something that we don't see in this current paradigm. Even if a, a defendant comes into the plea bargain situation, what's their motivation? Their motivation is to present themselves in the best light possible, even if they're lying and deceitful. The truth doesn't matter, and the truth should matter in justice. We don't get to the truth of what happens because nobody goes to trial. And even when people do go to trial, all that we have is a system that's set up to bring out only what we can use against somebody. Uh, Let's underline that. I I hope folks know, but maybe... It's a surprise even to me is how few trials there actually are in our system. It's almost entirely, uh, I've seen the statistics, it's less than 10% of the people in jail actually ever had a trial. It's like 7% or something. 3%. Nationally, 2.5 to 3%. That is it. So, folks, you really do have to understand that people, I mean, we see all these dramatic trials and stuff and reported. That's the absolute exception. And if you're right, 3%, 2.5%, everybody else is plea bargaining. Mm-hmm. And plea bargaining has two aspects of it. One of them is, you know, you get off a little easier if you plea bargain. The other is that if the punishments are draconian enough, terrible enough, you're going to plea bargain because even if you're not guilty, you know, you can't really you can't really stand going to jail for 15 years when if you plea bargain, you go for a year and a half. 
when that type of coercion brings people to say and do things that mm-hmm. aren't even w- in line with what really happened, mm-hmm. w- what we see is we see uh, the defense and the prosecution essentially use a human life as a bartering tool. And, and a person is not a commodity. In the plea bargaining system is one of the places that I think we as a state need to implement restorative justice more than anything. Mm. I'm working with some lawyers out of Maricopa County that are interested in bringing the restorative practices into that deal making place. It's in its early phases, but I think that just conceptually, if we would for a second look at it and say, instead of how can we punish this person and how can we uh, bring our will towards them? How might we as a society look to repair the harm? Mm. Like just on the onset, you can see asking that question, we're going to get two completely different results. Yeah. And the other thing is, what is our fundamental interest? Uh, Guys, what is our fundamental interest in society? Our fundamental interest in society is not having crimes repeated. Mm-hmm. That's really our in- a- interest. It should be. Put you in jail, not put you in jail. All we really should care about is that you understand what you did and that you're not going to repeat it. And that whole system of this massive punishment and in- incarceration is supposed to traumatize you into not committing the right. crime again, right? But that does it work? no sense on its surface. We're going to traumatize you yeah. into not committing right. crime? Yeah. Right. Wait a sec. We just established that trauma creates the cycle. Exactly. It just yeah. becomes a furthering. Well, there's, what, uh, 83% um, non-recidivism rate with this program, with restorative justice? Yeah, with in the youth cer- program. In the youth, in right. In the youth program mm-hmm. specifically, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the adult program we don't have statistics for. Mm-hmm. The... Um, um, yeah, but the even that is so fundamentally different. Imagine if in our in our deal making place we were really looking to address the harm and hold accountability instead of bringing the victims and offenders down two different pathways and saying you go this way and you go that way and you never talk again. What if we allowed for people to have their voice heard? To have their story heard. There's something so fundamentally important about understanding story. Oh, yeah. And creating these narratives literally create the neural pathways that create identity. And we have an opportunity with each. And this is where, as restorative practice, is one of our principles that this conflict is an opportunity. And on the onset, I think most people shirk away from that. They're like, what do you mean it's an opportunity? Like, I was hurt. He hurt me. This is awful. This isn't an opportunity. This is this is the worst thing that's happened. And we're coming in to somebody's worst moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And rather than coming in and subjecting them to what we as a, so- a society feel is right from them from a perspective of law, how about we give them the opportunity to figure it out for themselves? Mm-hmm. So much of the restorative practices and circles is creating that space where other people can resolve the conflict. A good facilitator never tells somebody what they need to do. Mm-hmm. They ask questions right. to explore and help Help somebody figure it out for themselves. Because how else are we going to give them the tool set to yeah. do this? So these people that are coming in and leading these circles and participating in this process, they are volunteers. Yes. 
So how do you get these people to come in and, and be a part of the program? I mean, are you guys looking actively all the time for volunteers yes. to be a part? Okay. Yeah, volunteers can go to the website, narj.org, and sign a form up right there, and we will be in touch with you about how to, to get involved. The understanding and the training is something that not only can be implemented in our program, but people find that they can implement it in every way of their life. So you're looking for people, not only the victim and the victimizer, but you're looking for other people. And you have a facilitator experience. And you're looking for other people to participate in this process to represent the community. So there's the community and then there's the principles. And you're all – and the community actually is a principle, I'm sure you know. No question. The the community is one of the biggest principles. Oftentimes it's that voice of the community that helps people identify the self-harm that they've done. When they hear the perspective of, I never thought it was going to hurt outside that person. It, it's, you get to see the ripple effects of their actions. Get, yeah. Absolutely. And understanding those ripple effects helps empower somebody to see, well, if I can make a negative impact like that, I can change my actions and have a completely different ripple effect. Mm. Well, um, well, I wanted to ask a ahead. question real quick because I've, we've got some pieces of where restorative or places restorative justice is being used. So we're starting in the schools, mm-hmm. which I guess restorative justice isn't really the right word because we're not restoring anything yet. I mean, is it you, yeah. guys, you use that? We as, use restorative practices, practices. at this point. Okay. And it's almost some it's something that we're working on nomenclature for because it is preventative. Mm-hmm. We're not yeah. necessarily repairing anything right. at this point. It's teaching and communication skills, really. It really is. Yeah. It, absolutely. It comes down to listening very well, hearing another person, and then communicating in a nonviolent way. Yeah. And then so the second step in restorative justice would be keeping, a, like you said, diverting people out of the justice system. So using it as a, a step before incarceration. Yeah. I, think that's, I think that's one approach. Personally, I think we have to involve the justice system. Mm-hmm. What we have here is we have a sheriff's office and the chief of police here in Sedona that are interested in having their staff learn restorative practices. It's no good if we don't change the paradigm yep. and infiltrate, in a way, the prison system. Yeah. It's such a harmful culture in itself Mm -hmm. and it self-perpetuates that harm and so the biggest place i think that we as a society can impact our criminal justice system is to train police officers in restorative practices to train our first responders in restorative Mm, practices to train the teachers as we're doing but to go beyond even in our boardrooms we have nonprofit organizations that are having conflict and look for different ways of resolving that conflict and restorative practices has worked very well at anywhere we find conflict it's fantastic i think the bottom line folks is something i said earlier is the present system of just putting people in jail and giving them no way back into society which is fundamentally what's going on doesn't work and it doesn't require any work it's easy you put them away you forget about them done yes i think something the other thing is that incarcerating everybody without trial based on threats of draconian super punishments if they don't cop to the cop a plea. Cop a plea, yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, that's just not working. 
So, we, you know, whatever doubts you might have about restorative justice, we have to try something new. We have to try something different, Dustin. The present system is not working. We've incarcerated more people than any other culture in the world, practically. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, How's it working for well, us? We're not. not. And then we got a recidivism rate after that of 70 to 80 percent of people mm-hmm. coming back again and again. So it's clearly not working to do what we want it to do. Yeah. Okay. And then so um, real real quick, I know you've got your announcement, Steve, but uh, I wanted just to once again give us the website. People can go and um, find find you guys. Yeah, it's narj.org. Excellent. Thank you so much for being yeah. here. This has been great. Part yeah, four. And give it to us once more. So mm-hmm. folks, narj.org. And Excellent. if you looked up restorative justice Sedona or restorative justice Verde Valley and Google, would you would you get to your site? Absolutely. Northern, Northern Arizona. Northern, Northern Arizona, Arizona restorative justice. justice. Yeah. Uh, the reason I'm kind of wrapping this up, folks, is that um, I have a couple of announcements. First, I want to thank the Verde Valley Democrats for supporting us. We really need their support. But uh, DOOR has a couple of interesting things. They don't have a speaker yet to announce for their um, April 15th breakfast at 10 a.m. But um, they have an exciting program of um, about... Their film program, let me give the date, I put it down, it's Friday, um, April 9th at 5 p.m. They're having a program about war crimes and stuff in Bosnia. They have a federal magistrate who's going to join the conversation, who was uh, part of prosecuting uh, a Bosnian Serb uh, um, war criminal. So it should be a really... Where's this uh, happening? What? Where's this happening? It's happening online. Online, okay. Because everything is online yeah. still, Hava. Uh, it would be a great discussion to have, but it's their film program. All right, folks, thank you for being with us. All This and all our other shows are on vvid.org. We appreciate you being with us. Thanks for listening. Listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.